0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 33 and refocusing on the Cape after spending the last episode partly in KwaZulu-Natal. By 1771, the Inn and the Sea, the town in Table Bay, was being referred to as Cape Town for the first time by travellers. It appears there was not even a formal process, just the town at the foot of the mountain emerging over the preceding 120 years. And by 1772, there were approximately 7,000 people living there. 4,000 whites, including 1,700 sailors, and 2,000 free blacks and slaves. Part of this episode is going to be viewed through the eyes of botanists and Scots gardener and explorer Francis Masson, who journeyed through the Cape three times. He arrived in October 1772 to find the acting governor was Joachim van Plettenburg. The newly appointed governor, Pieter van Reda van Ootswuren, had died at sea on the way out from Amsterdam. And right there are the men whose surnames would be two future towns, Plettenberg Bay, and Oatswoden. 1772 was an important year because that's when foreign shipping numbers increased significantly because of the American War of Independence, which I mentioned last episode. French ships in particular were sailing through the bay regularly because they were supporting the American rebels who were fighting the British. Cape Town was already known as a pretty and orderly locale, its layout admired by most who visited. It was clean, and tree-lined streets provided ambiance and shade on hot days. There were only two churches, the Krote Kerk and the Lutheran Church, which had just been established in 1771. The town spread across the plain below Table Mountain, closing the gap between the bay and the foot of the mountain. Despite short periods of great summer heat and wet winters, the attractive town was regarded as a pleasant place to live by now. Earlier, of course, it was a tiny village and most living there, particularly the Dutch administrators, saw it merely as a stepping stone to the far more important Batavian region in the Far East. This period of world history saw great changes, and so did the Cape. In May 1774, Louis XV died in France and predicted après moi le déluge, after me the flood, and he was right. A chain of events was set in progress with repercussions for Cape Town and the world. A rising tide of liberalism divided the Netherlands against itself and had indirect influences on both the French and American revolutions and on parliamentary reform in the United Kingdom. The burghers at the Cape were influenced by these events and made new demands on the local government which could not really deal with them. Another famous traveller was in the Cape at this point, the Swede under Sparman. We'll hear more from him too over the next few episodes. Both Sparman and Masson came close to being plundered by former slaves who were living around Table Mountain. These men and women found many hiding places in the looming mountains as they sought permanent escape from the colony inland or as stowaways on the ships. The area around Hunklip Promontory became regular hideaways for what were known as the Trostas. It was after one of these near-home excursions on Table Mountain that Masson met with the first of his many dangerous adventures. Masson had spent the day zealously recording the Fainboss when he lost his way. Before leaving his rented room, the owner had warned him that there was a band of desperate escaped slaves in the same territory. Finally, Masson found a shepherd's hut that was empty. He could not bar the broken-down door, so he took out his clasp knife and slept with it under a knapsack he used as his pillow. Later accounts claimed that the slaves who were chained together had seen him and were trying to nab him to use as a hostage. It was a terrifying night he spent crouching in the shepherd's hut as the convicts grew more and more desperate, searching for him in the brush in long sweeps. Later, he said he was more afraid of the dangerous animals than of the escaped slaves, but you understand how wild the environs were, even as the town itself had become known for its exotic beauty. Masson headed off to Swellendam soon afterwards, and it took him four days by wagon. He took the well-traveled route probably much the same as it is today, to the groot Rachenstein Valley and Paal, then to Franschhoek Valley. He noted that the French-speaking farmers called this town Petite Rochelle, and maps of the time used that name instead of Franschhoek. Masson was travelling with a European servant from Franschhoek to Stellenbosch. From there it was a short trip to the foot of the Stellenbosch mountains, and then up to the hottentots holland kloof which was used before Solari's Pass. He made his way to the Swartberg hot springs near present-day Caledon, and eventually Swellendam. Two days later, he travelled back to Cape Town along the same route. It was on this journey that he collected the seeds of many beautiful species of erica flower that would be grown so well in the Royal Garden at Kew back in England. It was also during this trip that Masson took a sample from the massive igneous protrusion called the Powell Rock. Later, he asked Dr. William Anderson to examine the specimen. Anderson was famous for accompanying Captain Cook as a surgeon's mate and naturalist between 1772 and 1775. During Masson's second trip in the Cape, starting in September 1773, he was to experience some anger directed at him by the Trek Boers, who even then were distinctly anti-British. Writing at the time about the rugged country, he described as The new inhabitants name Canaan's land, although it might rather be called the land of sorrow, he said. For no land could exhibit a more wasteful prospect, the plains consisting of nothing but rotten rock, Intermixed with a little red loam in the interstices, which supported a variety of scrubby bushes in the nature evergreen, but by the scorching heat of the sun stripped almost of all their leaves. Now, that's a little tough to swallow as a South African. Most people regard this area as beautiful, if a little rough. But he and other Europeans really did not see much value in the landscape, despite the uniqueness of the fauna and flora known as the Feinbos. He, like other Europeans, also feared the dragon-like mountains, which rear up sharply, covered at times in swirling mists and ancient memories. The Cape Fold mountains are the result of tectonic plate movements and have been thrust upwards and weathered into sharp-pointed, ominous shapes. By the 27th of September, he had arrived at Butiklip, a white granite cliff near Sultana Bay, and his descriptions improved somewhat. We had a charming view of the sea coast from St Helena Bay to the Cape of Good Hope, he wrote. Here yeah, we saw numbers of wild dogs, and some of them so near that I could discern them to be about the size of a large foxhound. They go in large packs and do great damage to the cattle. He also spotted hippos in the back river where it discharges into St Helena Bay. Remarkably, hunting hippo here was already illegal. In this river, it is not prohibited to shoot any of them as they are nearly destroyed for 800 miles from the Cape. The farmers shoot them for their flesh, which they esteem as good as pork, and of their hide, which is extremely thick, they make whips. These long whips were to be used extensively over the next 200 years as the Trekboers and English settlers began to spread out across the land. Then he is caught out in early October by the freezing rains that can sweep the highlands of the Cape, near the area called 24 Refirin District. We passed a chain of mountains, which were the Oliphant's riff back, a part of what Jan van Riebeck called the Mountains of Africa. This chain runs from north to south and includes the Hottentots Holland, Drakenstein, Hawekru, Winterhook and Oliphant's River Mountains. Caught in a deluge here, they slipped and slid along the edge of dangerous mountain passes until they came to what he called a miserable cottage belonging to a Dutchman. He wasn't too proud to enter, however. Being cold and wet, we were glad to take refuge under his roof. This is one of the earliest accurate descriptions of how the trek was deep in the interior were living. The hut had only one room, but our host gave us a corner to sleep in, which was detached by hanging reed mats where he and his wife slept, and in the other end lay a number of hottentots promiscuously together. Well, they all appeared promiscuously together, sharing spaces under a single roof. Surviving the hut in the mountains, they entered the Pile Valley, which impressed them, except for the wine. This country grows good corn and European fruit in great plenty, especially oranges and lemons of the greatest profusion, and the trees grow to great size. They also have wine, but it is sour and unwholesome. However, he was very impressed with another drink he was handed. The fruit yields water juices, which seldom ripen, but produce good brandy. Brandy remains one of South Africa's favourite tipples, and is fairly inexpensive for the quality that can be purchased. He had visited the hot springs at Kalinin and Bramfle near Booster. The water was hot enough to boil meat, he said, but he didn't actually put it to the test. Had he done so, he'd have found the real temperature was more like 43 degrees centigrade, which it still is. The bath at Tuvervatapur nearby was 49 degrees, and here he did test it by tasting it. Very hot and tastes strongly of iron, he reported. Mason was travelling about with Swedish naturalist Carl Peter Thunberg, who was to spend seven years touring about southern Africa and Asia. Thunberg would become famous for writing the first real description of the koi, whose customs elicited both his disgust and his admiration. And of course, there's another Thunberg called Greta, who's now famous for her stance on global warming and the causes of climate change. Perhaps an interest in the environment runs deep in the Thunberg clan of Sweden. The important note is that he tried to write descriptions of people by understanding their way of life and inverted much of the previous European commentary. The koi's habit of greasing their entire body with animal fat and then to mix another layer above this with cow dung or mud perplexed him until Thunberg realized that it made the koi cool in summer and warmed them in winter and was a quick fix compared to weaving wool and cotton, a skill the koi did not possess. Both Thunberg and Masson were to become lost near the great Duren River after they decided to proceed part of the way into the Karoo on foot. They left their wagons and oxen behind because of a scarcity of water and then spent the night in a thicket of Acacia Karoo. Luckily there was a hill nearby and early the next morning Masson climbed up to a high precipice from where he could see landmarks and make it back to their wagons. Back in Cape Town Masson and Thunberg made the acquaintance of 60-year-old Englishwoman Lady Anne Monson. She was the great-granddaughter of Charles II and married to her second husband, Colonel George Monson of the East India Company. She was collecting animal and other samples and spoke many languages, including Latin. Then, in September 1774, Thunberg invited Masson on an expedition to the Rockefellers, which the Scot was not entirely sure he should join. However, it was spring in the Cape, a time of great beauty, as all South Africans know, and he knew the flowers were blooming. The Namaquiland area teems with flowers, and the semi desert suddenly turns into a carpet of color, which Masson described as the whole country enameled with flowers. In the first week of September, both Masson and Tunberg managed to climb the summit of ribek Castile, then faced the Berg River, which was in flood. Again, they had to use a boat to get the wagons and contents over the river. It was here that they found a new species of aloe called the kookaboom by the Dutch, and named it aloe dichotoma. Masson stayed with a Dutch family on a farm here and says matter-of-factly that one day they met a commando of Dutchmen who had been, in his words, destroying the Bushmen Hottentots. He expressed no moral judgment, but as we know now, ethnic cleansing was going on around the Cape as the Trek Boers sought to eliminate the Koisan from the land. By late December they made it to Mossel Bay, where they had a fascinating encounter with a European who'd fled his native land. While Masson did not name him, it was the description that elicits interest. He received us very hospitably. He was a native of Swedish Pomerania, about 70 years old, and had been shipwrecked on the coast of England 50 years ago. He was a man of learning and expressed many sensible reflections on the tyranny of his native country, which had forced him to seek for an asylum in the deserts of Africa. This 70-year-old had lived amongst the Koi for more than a decade. His house was very mean, built of mud and miserably furnished, not having a bed to lie on, though he had several hundred oxen and some thousands of sheep. That was a fairly rich farmer by the standards of the day, and Masson was more concerned about the fact that he slept on straw than his obvious wealth. He had a number of Hottentot vassals, whose huts were situated round his folds, where they kept several large fires all night long to frighten away the wolves and tigers. Of course, despite being a botanist and part-time zoologist, Masson could not know at that time that southern Africa does not have wolves nor tigers. But who was this man living with what Masson called his vassals? This implies something that is quite important. The Swede-English stroke English farmer was entrenched on the land living his dream and obviously happy despite no sign of quality furniture. When they arrived in Mossel Bay, another description of importance was jotted down by the Scots traveller. To the north-east of the bay, he said, lies a woody country called Houtniqua's land. A vast forest covered this area. These woods are a great treasure to the Dutch and will be very serviceable to the inhabitants of the Cape when their other woods are exhausted. And exhausting the woods was going on in Hart Bay and other areas across the Cape as the European settlements grew by the year. In them are numbers of wild buffaloes that are very fierce and some elephants. Eventually, Masson's party arrived back in Cape Town in December 1774. They had travelled close to 850 kilometres from Cape Town to the Duren, Huntums rivers in the north through what is Pickettberg and van Reinsdorp today. Then they turned and headed back to Table Bay through the Tankwa, Karoo, Karoo Port, Wooster, Tulbach and Pau. Then he left southern Africa and only returned a decade later in 1786. But things had changed substantially for travellers during this decade. Firstly, Masson now needed permission to disembark and travel in southern Africa. He had been offered lodging with the widow de Witt at her house in Kaiserkracht, which is now known as Cartwright's Corner, and is on the corner of Adley Street and Darling Street. After some deliberation, he received permission, but Masson was told that another botanist by the name of Patterson had abused permission previously and spied for the British. Still, he was told to remain more than three hours on foot away from the coast, no closer. You see, the Dutch and the English... We were moving inexorably towards a war and the Cape was now highly strategic and very much in demand. William Patterson had used his scientific and collecting activities to garner military information during the American War of Independence when the Dutch supported the rebellious colonists like the French. The government in Holland and the Cape authorities had a very good reason to be wary of English-speaking Scots who were scientific collectors. Masson, however, spent another nine years at the Cape and only left on the cusp of the war, let's turn to the writings of another famous traveller Anders Sparman. He headed up the East coast in december seventeen seventy five and arrived at the Humptuous River near present-day Cape St Francis and met what he called a Hottentot captain called Kis. There were only women around this captain, about one hundred, and Sparman soon discovered why the men were out hunting for two things: one was a lion that was eating their cattle, and the other was for an hallucinogenic plant called con or canna, depending on which koi clan you were talking to. It's a plant of the genus Scalicium, which yields a drug that produces hallucinogenic effects when chewed and is still found across this part of southern Africa, although I probably shouldn't have mentioned it because now there's going to be a rush down to Cape St. Francis, better known for its sometimes hallucinogenically inclined surfers. A day later, Sparman met a Dutch farmer in his ox wagon who had followed the Sunday's river all the way from up country, from Kambidu, the Karoo. He informed us that this year, in which the drought was unusually great in all parts, it was remarkably so there, as scarcely a drop of rain had fallen in the space of eight months. The farmer remarked dryly that he had packed everything and decided to head to the coast, and on the day of the start of his trip, it had begun to rain. Showing the extent of his hospitality, the farmer told Sparman he was going to kill one of his oxen to prepare a great meal for the travellers. Then a moment later, two hartebeest appeared and the Dutchman shot one on the spot for the pot. He also related a story of great interest to Sparman and the rest of us as followers of history. As the trekboer wandered down the Sunday's river towards the coast, he'd met Clauser wandering down the river as well, a large group of men and women over 100 strong. There was no violence, no gunshots, no threats between black and white. Instead, the patriarch of the group proposed to sleep in the wagon with the trekboer. Then he said the next night the trekboer could sleep in the kraal chief's hut. When the trekboer refused, the latter request, the kraal chief simply shrugged and then slaughtered one of his oxen, which the trekboer said were uncommonly fat and in good condition at which he was the more surprised as they were not turned out till noon and driven home quite early. This is a truly remarkable explanation for quite a few things we've heard about already. The hospitality of both the Trekboer and the Tosa, the fact that both reared excellent cattle and were quite comfortable in each other's presence. The farmer continued, They talked to their cattle a good deal as they stood in the kraal, doubtless in the same manner as the Arabians do to their horses, which not a little contributes to making them thrive. These stories are highly emotive. This is 1775, and here near Mossel Bay and Cape St. Francis were men and women traveling around quite safely. The self-confidence of all three of these kinds of people, the koi, the Khoza, and the trekboer, was bred on the felt. They were living together, sharing food and shelter at times. The trekboers were taking Khoza and koi lovers out here in the frontier. A freedom of life comes with surviving on a land that challenges people of whatever race. The environment was a far bigger challenge for people at this stage in South Africa's development. Too bad. The acceptance of each other's ways of life didn't continue throughout our history, I suppose. Well, with that, we halt for this episode. Please rate the podcast on your favourite platform and you can send me an email through my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.